Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right, Dave, you want to come up? We are, we are part of a group of churches known as LifeLink. We don't stand alone. We don't operate in our own, um, what we think is a good idea for ourselves. We are surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who love us, who come alongside us, who support us. This is, this is so valuable to us. We're not just some independent church somewhere, but that we've got people who love Jesus and who love us, who speak into our lives, who care for us. And Dave is a pastor at Living Word Church in Lansing, Illinois. Living Word is a sister church, a church that planted us out a year and a half ago here in Highland. So they are the sending church along with Cross Point Church and Crown Point. And so we comprise this kind of group of churches called LifeLink Chicago. So LifeLink's bigger than Chicago. It, it's in America. It's in, it's in Europe. It's in all over the world. And so we're just a small little part of that. But Dave's a pastor at Living Word Church, and he's a dear friend. And he is here today to serve us by proclaiming the Word of God to us. Let's welcome Dave. Hey, how's it going? I'm all those things. I'm also a husband. That's my wife, Sam, right there. Everyone say hi to Sam. Oh, please. Thank you. <clears throat> Most of you know her. I've said hi already. Um, it's good to be here this morning. I, I, um, I realize that you as a, a new and young church are in the midst of a big decision. And so I come today bringing um, a word from Scripture, but I hope it will not only address your personal lives, it will also address your corporate life together. As you guys are considering this idea of a new facility, you know, years ago, they didn't just buy buildings, they raised them, didn't they? The old school way of uh, raising a barn. This is like uh, an old school barn raising. And, um, you know, a barn raising would happen in one or two days. They would get all the supplies, all the stuff ready, they'd get the word out, And then everybody would show up for like one or two days of intense barn raising. And they would build these huge, awesome barns. And when you were like early frontier days in North America, that's when barn raising was a big deal. The barns were the most important building that a family could have. More important than the house. Because a barn held all the tools. All it was was a tool. It held all the tools that were necessary to survive in the frontier. Your horses, your buggies, your plows, your hay, all that stuff went in the barn. And so to have a barn raised was a big deal. Now the thing about barn raising, it was kind of one of those things all hands on deck. It didn't just happen with, you know, a small crew of volunteers. They didn't have money to go out and hire tradesmen and, and, you know, call 1-800-RAISE-A-BARN and people come out, put your barn up and you just pay them with your credit card didn't happen it was the kind of thing that was a part of the culture where the community would come together and say let's do this thing it wasn't like just a coalition of the willing everybody came but now in those days when you settled a community much of it was your family and relations anyways right you weren't strangers and if you were strangers in a very short time you became quite close because it took community to survive in the frontier west of north america And so when someone was raising a barn, you were there because there'd be a day when you needed to raise a barn and you needed everyone there as well. 
So you're not really raising a barn. Uh, it's a far more sophisticated structure than that. But there is something that we can learn from that. And I want to bring that as kind of an ex- example because as we go through the scripture, Jesus will s- bring to us some principles of what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is what it means to follow him. And I believe there's direct implications to the decisions and the, the commitments you are considering making with the Munster property. So let's pray and um, let's ask God to open our hearts and minds in his word. All right. Father, we thank you for just a good morning this morning. When we think of you, we think of the God of wonders, and we do stand amazed. God, I stand amazed that even in this room, this small community of believers, of Christ followers, God, there is a determination here to do your will. God, there is a hardcore attitude about following you whatever the cost. I thank you for that. I want that in my own life too. God, we're challenged by those, those terms, those radical terms by which you call us. But Lord, help us not to shrink back and be afraid. Help us, God, to be the bold, passionate, enamored followers of Christ. Help us, God, to have faith. We know that faith comes through um, your word. And so we ask that as we go through your word, your word would go through us and it would plant in us seeds of faith. And Lord, it would, it would destroy and demolish fears and insecurities and anxieties, jealousies and frustrations. God, that our hearts might be pure and fully given, fully surrendered to you, King Jesus. That's our prayer. So much more we could pray to, but God, that's, that's it, you know. We pray it in your name. Amen. Amen. I just want to say one word about faith because faith is so critical in our lives, right? We know the scriptures that without faith it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11 goes through this great big list of people who, who neither, neither were absolutely, they didn't have all the I's dotted, all the T's crossed. They just went for it in God. Whether it was Abraham leaving his place to a place he didn't know, whether it was Noah building an ark, whether it was Sarah calling her husband master, whatever the issue was, whether it was Gideon with his small little 300 people bringing the great victory of the Lord, great legendary men and women of God who stepped out in faith believing God could do more than they could do if they simply made themselves available. Great, great legendary people. It was about 18 months ago when you, this group, was planted out in faith, believing that God was going to do something in your midst that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Listen, we wouldn't plant churches if, if we didn't believe it was worth it. It would be so much easier, so much, more, uh, so much less relationally difficult if we simply all stayed together in this nice big holy huddle. But we, we don't want that. They say Christians are like manure. You spread it out, and it fertilizes and things grow. You pile it up and it just stinks. <laughs> it's not a perfect metaphor, but it makes a point. And so we wouldn't have planted out if we didn't believe and trust that God was going to do something in your lives and through your lives that would be remarkable and noteworthy and it would transform not just you, but communities for Christ. This is the idea. This is why... Life in Chicago, we don't want to be mega churches with satellites. We, that's a fine for people that do that. That's not our vision. 
That's not our goal. We would rather 10 churches of 200 than one church of 2,000. And so Highland, Munster, Lansing, wherever matters. But in the end, we're going to see the whole south suburbs peppered with dynamic churches that love God and are passionate about their communities. And that's what you're a part of. This is your vision. This is your legacy. I was talking with one of the pastors in Crosspoint the other day, and they're, they're all stirred up about planting churches out of Crosspoint. And suddenly, what seemed like such a formidable task, how are we going to plant 10, 20 churches? It becomes far more, suddenly it starts coming together when they say, yeah, we want to plant in the next couple of years, a couple more churches. And I'm like, what? Do you know what that's going to take? But they know what it's going to take because they've done it. And the issue is there is faith resident in their hearts that God can do far more than we would ask or imagine if we simply step out and say, here I am available, God. And so it's a powerful, radical vision when we're walking in faith. When there's a sense that, that nothing can stop the move of God. Even my insecurities, even my frailties, even my empty bank account. God's in it. Let's do it. That's what faith looks like. It's an amazing trust that as we stand on a chair, we believe the chair is going to hold us. I'm so God, thankful this chair held me. But it's no different for a move that you're thinking about doing in Munster. Do you believe that God can hold you as you step out in faith? Do you believe it? Well, it's going to cost a lot. Time and effort. It's going to cost money. Praise God that he provided a church, but the bank still wants money for it. And so there will be all kinds of costs. But if you in your heart say, you know what, Lord, I'm in. Take what small amounts I have. And the Bible is just littered with stories of little people bringing little offerings. And God, whether it's a couple of fish and a couple of bread, whether it's the little mite by the, 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 the woman who gave that Jesus observed. Whether it's the, the widow who had just a small amount that gave to the prophet Elijah. Whether it's just a small, what seems insignificant. God says, if you offer that to me, I will multiply, magnify, and even glorify through it. It's an amazing thing, but that's what faith is like. And it's true in churches and buildings. It's true in marriages. It's true in all kinds of relationships. It's true in jobs. It's true in in school. It's true that if we walk by faith, he brings life and abundance into that. This is the gospel. This is the good news. All right. Let's let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter um, 14. Luke chapter 14 is a great uh, passage of scripture, um, and it talks about the cost of being a disciple. And so I'm going to pick up here in verse 25. I'm going to read the whole chapter, so read it with me. You ready? Are you ready? ready. See, I I need to know that we're together in this, see? Because I'm not going to pile up the supplies for the barn if I don't know you're going to show up with me. Otherwise, I'll be like, all right, honey, hold that board. I'm going to nail it in. And we're going to like eight boards up for the day. But if we all do it together, the barn goes up. All right, so you ready? Thank you. You're meeting in an electrical supply outlet 
there's no reason to be, you know, overly well-mannered. You can speak and shout and yahoo if you'd like. That'll change if you buy the Munster building. You have to be far more civilized, far more religious. I, I'm just talking, just seeing if you were listening. All right, verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And he turning and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and he's not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and he's not able to finish. Ha! Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Wow. Radical passage. But you got to understand the scene and the situation. And we're going we're to talk through some of the, the, the terms in which Jesus uses to make his point. First of all, it says large multitudes of people were coming and following him. Jesus was the man to see. When Jesus came into town, people ran to see him because his reputation was legendary. Here, this amazing teacher who spoke with such authority, who confronted the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, who did signs and wonders and miracles of mercy and compassion that changed families. He healed children, raised little girls from the dead. People with leprosy were cleansed and they could return to their families again. Jesus was a big deal as he walked around that countryside and following him was all kinds of different people sure there were true disciples there there were followers that would lay down their life for him and one day did but there was also this this the spectators the people who wanted to see what was going on the folks that that weren't quite sure what to do with it or weren't really willing to make a big commitment but they kind of wanted to see what was going to happen You know people like that. They're not really committed to it, but they kind of hang around it long enough just to kind of see what's going on. See if anything exciting or noteworthy or something they can use to tell a story. They weren't really committed. They were also not just the committed disciples and the spectators, but they were also real skeptics. People who were only there to fi- find the mistakes, to catch him making a mistake. And so here you have this large group of people, and Jesus turns to them and he says these radical things. Hey, don't even bother following me, he says. 
Unless you are willing to hate your father, hate your mother, hate your wife, hate your brother, hate your sister, and hate your dog. What? Jesus wants me to hate my mama? I love my mama. Jesus was using strong terminology, hyperbole, exaggeration to make the point, to say, listen, if you really are going to follow me, there can be nothing, even your mama, even your daddy, even your spouse for that matter, your children. None of that can come before what it really means to be a disciple. These were radical, radical words. And certainly there were those who heard him who heard him wrong. They walked away and says, I can't, I can't hate my children. I love my children. Well, in fact, Jesus wasn't trying to say you had to hate your children. But he was making the point that unless you love me more, you'll never love your children properly. Unless you experience what it means to be a fully surrendered follower of Christ. I mean, you can't even be the husband, the father, the mother, the son, the daughter that God made you to be. Because we are all wretchedly broken by sin. And we need the redemptive work of Christ in us. So that once I was a rebel, but now I'm no longer rebellious. I am fully surrendered to Christ. And though there's residue of sin in my heart, my whole life screams of pleasing Christ. And though I don't do it perfect, God, I say you become first in all things. And I come to realize that I can't be the husband to the woman that God loves over there, that I need to be, unless my heart is saturated with the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is raising a high standard. He goes, all you spectators, all you skeptics, understand this, that unless the Son of God is the ultimate priority in your life, you cannot follow. As a matter of fact, unless you yourself surrender your life pick up your cross and say, man, I am dead to this world, but I'm alive to Christ. You are not my disciple. This is the call of discipleship that Jesus brings to those people. And it's the call of discipleship he brings us to today. And putting him first in all things, it informs, it empowers, and it enables us to be the men and the women of God that we're called to be in every situation. If we're teaching school, if we're running wire, if we're driving a truck or if we're operating on doing brain surgery on somebody. All that is informed, empowered by who we are in Christ. And so we go back to this place of identity. Who, who am I? Am I a follower of Christ? Or am I first and foremost my own man, only dabbling a little bit in spiritual things on the side? Am I first and foremost, are there things that I say, Lord, that's out of your reach? These things you may not meddle with God. Man, certainly Abraham thought of that when he, he was told to take his beautiful, precious child who, who on all accounts was the very child that God promised him, laid him on the altar. Hebrews 11 says, he did that believing that even if he did kill his son, that God would raise him from the dead. Because God is faithful to his promise. And we see his promises fulfilled as we surrender everything. And so he raised the knife. And God supplied the lamb. Jesus says, you can't be my disciple unless everything is laid out 
before me. Uh, reading those words and hearing my own voice, my heart cries out, Lord, I want so bad to be your disciple in every way. And suddenly the Holy Spirit begins convicting me. Well, Lord, I see that. I'm not your disciple there. I see here where I'm not following you. I see unsurrendered parts of my life. And even these moments, as we, as we hear his word and we ask God's word to go through us, these are the moments when we say to God, even as you're listening to the sermon, oh God, I surrender that part of my life. I let it go, oh God. I let it go. Let that part die that I might live fully for you. He says in verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Let me just read that in a couple other versions. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So then, any of you who does not forsake, renounce, surrender, claim to, give up, and say goodbye to, all that he has, he may not be my disciple. Simply put, if you're not willing to take what's dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. God doesn't have any sacred cows. It's all on the altar. And I would say to you guys as a church, not just as individuals, but as a church, as you go through this process to say, God, we want to move forward in faith. Once again, everything has to go on the altar. It's a time to recalibrate your hearts, to say, Lord, am I really a disciple? Or am what I'm doing, am what I'm, how I'm serving, how I'm, how I'm living my life as a Christian, am I really doing that in the way in which I mandate and design? Do I make it look like I'm serving you, but... Am I really serving the motivations of my own heart? That's what it means to carry your cross. Say, Lord, I'm dead to the motivations of my own heart. It's the motivations of your heart, King Jesus, that I'm alive to. And those are very personal. Those are very, those are very deep, probing questions. But when you're making decisions, when you're, you're counting the cost, you have to say to God, Lord, let my motivations be pure beyond pure. Sift me, O God that I'm not doing things or reacting or, 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 or moving forward in a motivation that's me-centered. I don't like it because of this. Oh, I want it because of that. It has to be, Lord, I am dead to this world, but Lord, you move me forward. You move us forward. And then we know you'll do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask, more than we could imagine. We'll see a harvest among us. You know, following Jesus is just such an unbelievably phenomenal gift to us. I was um, reminded of that recently, where, um, where I get my hair cut. I, I go to a fancy place, hair cuttery. <laughs> you get the shampoo and everything for 15 bucks. And um, you always get a random person, but over the last year I've gotten consistently the same person cutting my hair and over the year, I've just been sharing my own heart and faith with her about the Lord, and the Lord's just really given us these most amazing conversations, so much so that to the, typically the average conversation while we're cutting, she's cutting my hair, her eyes are watering, and she's crying and cutting my hair, and she's you know, talking about this and sharing her heart and weeping, and I don't even need a shampoo because my hair is just wet by the time. 
That was hyperbole. Jesus did it. I do it sometimes. Well, anyways, there was one haircut, and I, I just said to her, you know, this conversation is bigger than a haircut. Why don't you come by and talk to my wife and I, and we'll just really talk about what it, the things of God together. And she had all kinds of issues, and not the least of which what it really meant to surrender everything. And so she came over, and we just had this long talk. We built this relationship. Well, she came to church a couple times, and the last time, a couple weeks ago, when she was there, um, we were about to have communion as a church, and so we went over, Sam and I, and we just talked about communion and what it meant to celebrate the broken body and the, the cup of the Lord. And, and so uh, and while we were talking about it, she says, you know what, I want that, and I want to give my life to Christ. And she gave her life to Amen. Jesus. Yeah. And um, yeah, praise the Lord. That's what it's all about. Anyway, so Sam just wrote a little follow-up email. Hey, how you going? What's happening? This and that. And here's an excerpt of what she wrote back. She said, um, hi, Sam. Thanks for writing. Smiley face. Yeah, me and I are both well. Um, and God is good, exclamation mark. I have to say, I have never in my whole life felt happier and more complete and safe and whole. Isn't that beautiful? This is what a surrendered life to Christ looks like. Happy, complete, safe, and whole. She's getting it. She's getting it. Let's return to that place as we make decisions. All right. Counting the cost. I love this here. He gives us two, two ideas. He says, hey, there's a building to be budgeted and there's a battle to be fought. Those are his two examples. It's still under this theme of counting the cost. He says, hey, unless you're willing to put me first, it's not going to work. Don't bother. And so he gives another illustration. And these are illustrations of what it means to follow Christ. But there are also principles for what it means to, to walk with Christ. And so, budgeting a building and battling and a battle to be fought. Let's talk about this, a building to be budgeted. Jesus says, he says, suppose you want to build a tower and cannot, don't you first sit down and estimate what it costs. So you have enough money. Because if you start it and you don't finish it, people are going to make fun of you. People will ridicule you. People will laugh at you. Have you ever seen a half-built church building and wondered, oh, I wonder what happened there? The testimony of those who aren't willing to finish what they start is not the same as those who persevere and finish what they start. It's never a good thing. We should never celebrate when a Christian church fails in any way. As a matter of fact, we should grieve and ask the Lord, how can I help? But when it comes to our own moving forward, it's important that you count the cost. You know, when Sam and I got married, we were fortunate enough, I got married a little bit later and we were working, uh, I was working, she was working, and we had a little bit of money together. And so we bought a house right when we got married. And I can remember, remember those were just exciting times. And um, what it meant to buy a house, though, was a much bigger decision than it would have been if we'd have rented a house or rented an apartment, right? Because if you're renting a joint, I mean, if the furnace goes out, you're like, oh, no big deal. Hey, come fix the furnace. If the roof starts leaking, you're like, bad so sad just get our stuff out of there call the landlord he's got to come over and fix it but when you buy a house two things happen first of all it's far more precious to you i remember I was sitting on the old couch that um that they left because it was it was the old couch that they left and i remember after just a long exhausting day of washing the walls and scraping the floors and cleaning the place up we were beat and we sat in there and, and out of the big picture window which wasn't clean yet we we saw this beautiful full moon Remember that? It was just a great night. And we sat there 
totally exhausted. But we sat there, we began to talk and dream about what that house would be and what it would be like to be married there. About the children that would run through those rooms. And our hearts just filled up with this profound sense of, hey, God has provided and we have a place that we call our very own. Now, you can do that if you're renting, but it's not quite the same. It meant that, but it also meant that, hey, whatever happens in this place, I'm responsible for. That, that if, it, if the ceiling leaks, I got to fix that. It's, that's on me. If, if something happens and um, there's a big fire in the front yard and all the grass starts on fire and it starts burning up the tree in front of you, and if at one o'clock in the morning a, a fireman rings your doorbell and opens it up and says, hey, there was a big fire out here, we got it out, then that's your problem to deal with. Not that that ever happened to us. That was strictly hypothetical. It was our first night living in that home as married people. My front yard started on fire. Yeah, yeah. I know. Imagine that. Think what the neighbors thought of that. Who, who did jokers have bought this joint? They just almost lit the neighborhood up. Fireman said that the fire was like 15 feet in the air when he got there. He was all full of soot and everything else. I'm like, what? My front yard looked like one of those forests that got, you know, burned up up in Colorado. But it's your problem. They're your issues. And the question that you guys have to think about is, let's count the cost about this. It's one thing to attend a nice church plant. We got a cool pastor who preaches the word. We got, we got the stuff and we kind of put it together. And it's one thing to say, yeah, I'm going to show up and I'm going to help a little bit. It's a totally different thing to say, hey, we're going to buy this place and we're going to own it. We're going to make it our own. The memories and the celebrations of that place, they're going to be ours, and they're going to be richer than ever. And the problems and the struggles with that place, they're going to be ours, and we're going to be there to fix it and to pay for it. That's the difference between renting and buying. You've got to count the cost. When you buy that building, if slash when you buy that building, I believe you're buying that building, it'll be bought under the name Living Word Church Incorporated. All our buildings, all our stuff at this point is all under kind of a common nonprofit. But that don't mean it's other people's responsibility to look after it for you. It means it's yours. All the elders, the broader eldership of LifeLink Chicago are fully on board and supportive of you. We are here for you. We, we've been praying. We've been seeking God in it. We've been walking it through with Johnny and John and Ruth. We are in this with you. But the indication for us of whether or not it should be done is whether or not you guys are willing to own this thing and count the cost and say, yes, we believe it. We believe in that vision. Our faith is there and we believe God is going to do great things in the midst of it. We don't want to see spectators. We want to see people that are owning the issue, going for it. And when we see that, we're like, pile on everything we got. We want to contribute to it. Let's help make them a success. But you guys have to run the front. Be passionate about it and own it. And that's the faith I'm hearing about. That's, those are the reports we're getting back. And so it's exciting. But I want to tell that to you. When I, my first car I bought was co-signed by my dad. But when I ramped it up and bought a house, I made sure that I showed up for work every day on time because I had to keep that job because I had to pay for that house. I made sure that when I got home, I didn't just flop on the couch and turn on the TV. I went downstairs and changed the air filter in the furnace and mowed the lawn and all that stuff. 
When you believe God sets you in a direction, you say, Lord, whatever the cost, we're going to go for it and we're going to make it happen. And we knew with every little bit we put, effort we put towards it, God, you are going to pile on and amplify and bring fruit that we could have never seen before. Because God, is, as much as we want to see you out front, God is out front of you. You've got to count the cost, though. This other thing is this issue of the, um, the battle to be fought. He says, you wouldn't go out to war unless you counted your men and knew that you had the right strategy had the right resources to go out and win the battle. Otherwise, you send a delegation out and you just call for peace. He ends this message by talking about salt. Let me just bring you two scriptures about the battle. First is from 2 Samuel 23, verses 9 through 12. It's just a great story. It's when they're writing about David and his mighty men, his great, valiant warriors. And he says, there was the three, the legendary three, David's three most valiant men. And it begins to tell the great story of how the three did exploits. And in verse, verse 9, we, we hear this. But Eleazar, who was one of the three, stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. The verse before that says, and as they went to fight, the army retreated, except not Eleazar. He found a field, and he said, this is my field, I'm going to fight. And he fought until his hand froze to the sword. He had that kind of courage, that kind of tenacity. And there are things you're standing in faith for, whether it's for your husband or for your children, whether it's for a job. There, there are, there's a time to take a stand and say, God, I'm not going to give up until you bring the victory. And you can just picture this old soldier, one of the great three, say, this is my spot, and I'm going to fight here. We don't battle, battle with swords and stuff, but we battle in prayer. We battle with integrity. We battle in faith. We battle in boldness. Here's a guy that stood his ground and wouldn't give up because he believed the Lord would bring about the victory. And when everyone else retreated, he stood firm. I love that story. I want to be a valiant man like that. We don't, have to, we don't deal with killing people, right? But there are areas in which we need to take a stand. And as you guys move forward together, you've got to consider, Lord, where is my field? Where will I need to take a stand? And fight there until my hand is so tired that it just, it just freezes to the Cheerios. <laughs> I've been doing nursery so long, my hand is frozen, but here, eat this Cheerio. I've been on my knees praying so much my knees have cramped up. I can't get up. Because I've battled, I've held my ground. The battle to be fought, we understand, is the testimony of King Jesus transforming lives in our world. I want to end with this thought here, found in Matthew chapter 5. What Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Sounds just like the end of Luke here. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, he says. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, 
and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's not about buildings. It's about putting hands and feet to the gospel. And here in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, hey, don't be good for nothing. He says, don't be good for nothing. Don't put it under a bowl. Whatever you do, Christ must be the priority and the battle is about not against each other, not against little things that cause churches to be completely ineffective, their testimony ruined. Your battle is this, that you might be the light of the world, the salt of the world, a city on a hill, that wherever your faith brings you, that you would flourish in testimony with a boldness that says, hey, I'm not going to be good for nothing. I read an article um, just this week about a guy who did a great thing to testify for the Lord. It was just, there was a big fight going on and the guy stepped in and he actually paid for something that was being disputed over to totally resolve the fight and both people were like, man, I'm amazed by it. He walked away and he, he says, and I was so embarrassed because here I demonstrated a kingdom principle but I didn't share why I did it. There was no testimony about, I learned how to do this because Jesus showed me how to give. Jesus paid the price for me so I can pay a price for you. And he says, to my shame, I, I missed it. That is not what we want. Your battle is to be a testimony to the Lord wherever you go with a, with a dynamic, not religious, but dynamic testimony about how Jesus transforms lives and how when we surrender it all, he comes and brings us profound joy. He makes us safe complete, whole. He turns us into worshipers. Your brothers and the churches around you are with you, heart and soul. We only ask this, that when you go forward, you do it with boldness, you do it with courage, you do it with sacrifice, you do it with unity, and that there would be, from this beautiful church, a testimony that says, you know what? We're willing to lay down everything so that Christ is glorified wherever we are. Amen? Amen. Amen. Stand with me and let's pray. And I, someone's going to lead us in communion today. Father, we give you thanks for this time we've spent reading your word. I do pray, Lord, that, um, that the fruit of it would not be imperfect like my words are, but that the Spirit would bring just what's needed and that faith would rise, God, in our personal lives and in our corporate lives. Lord, we once again surrender our hearts and lives to you. We want to be able to say, all that we have, Lord, is yours. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.